Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with my old friend Bela Barner about helping lead executive teams through complex, high-stakes decisions. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and I am so delighted to welcome Bela Barner, an old friend and uh, a superstar, as a guest on The Indispensables. Uh, Bela's been helping lead executive teams through complex high stakes decision making for 20 plus years. Um, and I would say how long, but I don't want to date him. Uh, he, he does work in strategic planning and higher education. He's held a bunch of consulting roles in professional services firms. He's got an MBA and, uh, from uh, the University of Chicago, no less. Um, I'm delighted to have this conversation um, about decision making and how you got uh, to be such an expert on on strategy and decision making, Bela Barner, welcome to the Indispensables. Well, good morning, Bruce. Thank you. Great to see you. Uh, I appreciate that glowing introduction. I think you got the old friend part right. You pretty much nailed that down. So, well, why don't you uh, tell the listeners who who don't know you? Um, how, how did you? What's your story? How did you get to where you are? Uh, my story, I think for a lot of people, it's just about the journey, a lot of experimentation, a lot of failings and finding, finding a sweet spot and just trying to take advantage of opportunities that they've come along, learning, learning about yourself, learning your own strengths, learning your weaknesses, embracing new challenges, not being afraid to fail and, and, you know, taking a lot of blows to the chin. I, I, I think you have to live your life with an open mind like that, that, yeah, you're going to, you're going to screw up quite a bit. You're going to make a lot of mistakes, try to learn from them. You're going to get some things right. And it's more a process, I think, of evolution than revolution. I, I think there's a tendency in today's age, like in the corporate world, is you want to create a grand master plan and follow it. And if you deviate that from that plan, it can feel like a failure. And nothing wrong with planning. You have to plan. But you plan for scenarios, you plan for different outcomes. You don't just fixate on a path. You have to be adjustable. And I bring that philosophy to the strategic planning that I do with my clients. It's, it's more about taking measured risks, reacting to what the world throws at you, experimenting, accepting some failures, and finding what works. One of my favorite professors at, at UC in the business school was a clinical professor, which means that he was you know, less sort of research-oriented and very hands-on, he ran a, a private investment firm and did a lot of turnarounds, but he taught this great strategy course. And he just said, more is caught than is taught when it comes to successful strategy. So great strategies are not the, the, the product of a lot of sort of academic style study and planning and research and trying to predict the world, how it was gonna unfold in five years. It was more about being nimble, flexible, making mistakes, accepting them, taking measured risks and learning. Yeah, that's great advice. And I think it's very realistic. And people uh, with whom I've worked over the years who are in really high stakes situations where lives are on the line, the key to strategic planning 
uh, is being prepared for the unexpected or expecting that whatever you plan, you know, as they say in the military, uh, your plans are overtaken by events and then you have to you have to improvise. But I know that you have become a trusted advisor to senior executives and a lot of mission driven organizations. How did you get into that? position where people who are running very important, uh, resource-constrained, but uh, mission-driven organizations look to you to help them execute on their missions more effectively? Well, a lot of it, it just has to do with my personal fit and my, my personal style and, and what I like to do, to be brutally honest. It became apparent over years that I did not feel comfortable or fit very well in big organizations. And I gravitated toward to working with smaller organizations. And I was probably much more suited to being self-employed, working in small teams. So, you know, not being a, a, a good fit for an, an Anderson or Accenture or McKinsey or these organizations forced me to find other avenues to do the type of consulting work that I wanted to do. And, you know, through friendships and just, I think, being opportunistic and having some good luck, I was able to find clients, smaller organizations, typically under 100 million, really all under 100 million that had complex problems, but didn't have the resources or really the cultural fit to bring in a large consultancy to help them think through these problems. Uh, the problems are complex, but they're just smaller scale. And the nature of the engagement required someone who is uh, more hands-on, I think more sort of intimate with the leadership team, uh, could do a lot of the sort of analy analytical lifting themselves, which is something I do quite a bit of. So a lot of it is just about finding a fit. But how did you become an expert on strategy? It took a while because I, 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 you know, I post college, I started my career with, well, then it was called Anderson Consulting, and I was doing what's called systems integration work, which was basically computer programming to tie systems together. And I was a bad programmer. Well, that's what's now called Accenture. Yeah, Accenture. Yeah. So back then it was Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting. It was a plum job right out of college. I mean, I, I was an econ major and a French major, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I knew I was a what, what's called a systems thinker, which is someone who sort of can deal with a lot of complexity and see the interconnections of things. I learned that about myself in high school, thanks to some of the teachers that I had. But it never really occurred to me that consulting would be a good career to practice that, you know, to develop that skill set and leverage it. But hey, Anderson Consulting offered me a decent paying job out of college, and it, it, I knew it was a great place to work. And I went and did it, and I realized I'm a terrible programmer. Um, but there was a type of programming that I was really good at uh, in skill set called data modeling, right? And it had to do with uh, working with what we call relational databases. Um, I could just sort of visualize how the data fit together. So those data modeling skills I developed have stuck with me since that time. And I actually use them quite a bit, uh, especially with smaller organizations that I work with today that are very, very challenged from a computer systems perspective. They typically have a deficit of data. Uh, so not only do they, they lack data because their systems are very immature, but they don't have information, right? So there's data and there's information. Most big corporations have too, too much data and they have too much information. They use information that isn't relevant and reliable and it, it clouds their thinking. So, 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 what you, so, so are you saying that, in, that your insight there was that you need the right information? That was certainly one of them. Um, there's been a, I've had 
a bunch of aha moments as I've kind of followed this consulting path. The first, probably one of the big aha moments really was after getting, so studying, you know, two years full-time to get an MBA at the University of Chicago, which is known as a very sort of quantitative school. They have a legacy in terms of studying financial markets and developing theories about how security, how markets work, how securities are priced. And a lot of that is based on this notion of having perfect information. And it's kind of been discredited. Discredited. Well, I think it's basically discredited every day when you look at the stock market. But the theory is if you, know, if you have perfect information, you're going to make a better decision. And that's that's a reasonable thing to assume. And I thought, well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So right after getting my MBA or during while I was working, I, I go to work for a small consult, another small consulting firm that did a lot of research, like market research, like surveys and focus groups and you know, looking at secondary sources. And their clients were primarily private equity firms that were thinking about buying companies. But before they bought that company, they wanted to make sure that sort of the market was what they thought it was in terms of size and growth. The customers that they had were as dedicated as the sellers would claim and you know the the channel and the competition and all that stuff was was how it was being described or portrayed so that's called due diligence and that's what I did and I I would gather a lot of data and put together sort of a story and I could do that and I thought well man you know if you get good data and, and put it in front of people they're just going to make a good decision and I believed that for a while and I sort of I practiced that and and it was generally borne out but there was something that was missing that, you know, this purely sort of quantitative view of the world was just a small piece of the puzzle. And I probably got my first taste of it when I went to work for this university that was in a financial turnaround. And, uh, you know, a private, it was a private university in Chicago, pretty good size. And, you know, universities are, are strange animals. They can because they have a governance model that can or cannot involve the faculty. This particular one did. It was very faculty driven, as a lot of them are. So, a university that needed to make some major changes, sell off some campus assets, really reposition itself from a branding perspective, develop new programs to serve different types of students that were now the core audience for this university. And this is a university that well, the faculty, how the faculty view themselves was not how the outside world viewed itself. So that was a great outlet for me because I had a quarter million dollars to spend on market research and come up with all these insights to say, hey, who you think you are does not match up with what the rest of the world is saying about you. Um, There's a pretty big disconnect here. And let me show you where these disconnects occur. So it was quite an education um, because, you know, the data to me was clear as day. I mean, it was crystal clear. And I wrote a report and I did the slides and did all that stuff. And it told a very clear story. I mean, it was really hard to not accept this. But some faculty, not all, but some just refused to accept it. That's fascinating. Right. It it conflicted with a lot of these sort of personal um, biases that infect our thinking, which is something I learned about actually later in my sort of my next career stop or a couple of stops down the road, the role of bias and subjective bias and how much it influences our thinking. So, so are you saying that you inv- you you discovered Freakonomics before there was such a thing? Yeah, I should have written a book about it. I, you know, I'd probably be a wealthy man. But yeah, it, it, yeah, Freakonomics. Yeah, it, Freakonomics is a wonderful book for the way it it looks at problems, human behavior problems through a very different lens. Uh, and I'm so thrilled that Freakonomics basically came out of the University of Chicago. So the same institution that talked about 
the theory of per- perfect information now kind of flipped itself over, at least well, some of the faculty did, and now have gone in, into a totally different sort of set of assumptions about human behavior, right? And probably, I think, a lot more closer than the truth. Yeah, but it's, it's quite interesting because uh, that's really what you're saying is that you could see that from your early experience, that, that, that insight came to you. And uh, maybe it's not an accident that uh, is Levitt, the professor at Chicago. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think Levitt at the time was uh, like an associate. You know, the other guy who's sort of the godfather of all this is, is Richard Thaler, uh, who wrote Nudge. Um, you know, he's another guy, but yeah, they're all, they're all UC. I've met Thaler a few times and I mean, he's, he's older now, but he's still going at it. But I mean, he's, I think Nudge was sort of one of the seminal books on it. Uh, Freakonomics is a better read because it's a more approachable book. Like it, it talks, it gives many more real life examples. Like the, the chapter on uh, the kid and that he interviewed or sort of tailed around on the south side of Chicago, who was a gang member and examined his decision to become a gang member um, and do all these, you know, things that are horrible things that we would describe as horrible things. Well, when you looked at through the context presented by Stephen Levner, this was this kid's best opportunity. Yeah. To, to take, take a risk, right. Break the law, take a risk of being thrown in jail. But that risk was minimal compared to the potential upside of, you know, making a lot of money. And there weren't any other options to him. There weren't any jobs, you know, maybe the, he didn't have a great education. There weren't a lot of opportunities in, in that avenue. So what he did was perfectly rational. He did a risk reward analysis. See, I can become a gang member and incur these risks, but the reward is much, much higher. And I think, the, you know, the, the probability aspect of the risk is relatively low. It's a perfect, it was a very good decision. This is a really smart kid. I mean, it's unfortunate that he's you know, breaking the law and maybe influencing other lives. But when you look at it through the lens of Freakonomics, it's perfectly rational. You know, if more people could sort of understand these frameworks, I, you know, I, I think we might understand each other a little bit better. Yeah, and I, I, I love that you um, zero in on the, the role of emotion, the role of subjectivity, the role of bias, and how those affect decisions every bit as much as rational thinking. I mean, Kenneth Arrow, Kenneth Arrow uh, um, uh, had a great theory, but it's just not accurate. So, so let me ask you, because I know, I think it was before you went to the University of Chicago to get your MBA and before you turned around this private university, um, uh, what was, am I right that you went to Budapest for a few years? Was that before you got your MBA? Yeah, that was pre-MBA. So I'd worked at Anderson for about three years and I got bored. And I thought, well, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to program for five years and manage programs for another couple of years and become a partner. I just it just didn't do it for me because like most humans, I'm very short term focused. Right. I value immediate rewards. And uh, so I had a chance to go live in Budapest for a year for a Peace Corps type organization. But for me, it was a chance to go live in a foreign country. And uh, you know, I had 25 years old wanderlust. But I tell you, it was a. It was a great decision. I mean, it was purely by accident. There was an opportunity, an opening. I took it, not knowing what how it was going to turn out. But I thought, well, geez, I got to go live in a, a very strange place and and just totally, you know, I kind of I kind of felt I needed to rewipe my hard drive too, if that, to to give you a really bad analogy. I was going through some tough times. I mean, just kind of adjusting to the world and had some doubts and and thought I need to wipe my mind clean. And that's a big reason why I did it. And uh, it worked in the sense that you know, I learned a lot about myself that I just didn't 
I probably would not have learned, you know, had I stayed in that same avenue or path that I was on. So how, how important was that for you in terms of developing empathy or an understanding that, you know, this is before you ever went to the University of Chicago to, to get this, this incredible quantitative, uh, rational uh, economics uh, education. Um, but, but how much were you going in then with that? It, it, the program you were on was uh, Walkabout, right? That's what I called it, yeah. Uh, oh, that's what you called What was it called? It wasn't the Peace Corps. No, it was like the, it was modeled after the Peace Corps. It's called National Service League. And the idea was to take a bunch of, you know, young, energetic kids and send them to work on quasi public interest or quasi governmental public interest projects in the nascent democracies of Eastern Europe. So it was 1992. The wall had come down in 89 in Hungary. So the government had just changed. Um, there was a lot of Western European investment, but not, you know, the sort of America hadn't invaded yet. I mean, Budapest is a small country small from a consumer market perspective. Poland was much more interesting to the Western companies uh, at that time. I was fortunate in that I was uh, paired up with uh, one of the foremost energy economists of a British guy who'd been hired by the EU to run some energy efficiency programs in Hungary. So I actually did some real work when I was there, um, helped him research the environmental law that was being proposed. Uh, it wasn't a very good one. It was very coal-based. Um, we presented in Prague. I helped administer some of the energy efficiency funding programs uh, that were targeted at Hungarian companies. And so I did real work when I was there. But, you know, the the thing that I discovered was that human beings are, we're all pretty fundamentally much the same. Uh, we want a nice job, a little bit of extra money, maybe for vacation. We worry about our health. We worry about our families. We worry about our children. You know, we value a lot of the same things. Uh, that really kind of struck me as like, you know, these people over here are really very little, very little different than what I've seen back home. Like they're, they're, that's sort of the human connection that we all share. And it's it's just a concern for sort of our immediate welfare and some concern about the long term welfare, but more immediate and Political systems don't really matter, Matter, you know, they don't change you as an individual so much. Maybe that's debatable today. I don't know. I just, well, I came out of that year just kind of having a, a different view of, of human nature than I did before. And then you went to Chicago and got the kind of like hardcore MBA training. And then you're with this small consulting firm. And then... Uh, and and I know that you also um, uh, have learned uh, a lot about um, decision making by actually looking at uh, cognitive processes and and uh, through a software lens. Uh, but am I right that you also uh, have have some experience also as a retailer? I call that the accidental retailer. So, yeah, so the the post-MBA consulting work sort of hung up a shingle, paired up with some firms, and that's when I did the university turnaround. It actually was in-house here for about five years, which was long enough. Uh, and because we had a presidential, two presidents come in, I did two strategic plans. You talk about job security, but that got old. Uh, so my wife had an aunt who died, and she left behind a small, successful women's clothing business. And... Uh, my wife was busy being an attorney and uh, right. This is a few years before we started a family. So I thought, well, I, you know, I can probably have time to sort of manage this thing and, and not hopefully not screw it up. And so I took over this business 
uh, small business, retail business. And uh, that was quite a ride. Thankfully, there were a couple employees there who who sort of knew the the retail side, you know, women's clothing and and that. And my first year there, I said, well, this business is doing well. I don't need to change anything. So I'm not going to change anything and mess it up. I just need to understand it. And then, then maybe I'll make some changes. And eventually I got around to changing like the software system and doing some things differently. And but it was, yeah, it was yeah, I, managing a retail business or working in a retail environment is one of the hardest things a person can do from a sort of a career perspective. I have just the utmost of respect for people who work in retail. It's really difficult work. Yeah, I agree with that. And, I, I, you know, we've done a lot of work with Walmart and Target and uh, 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 supermarkets and, you know, not to mention restaurants and other folks in the hospitality industry. One of the things I think is uh, about that or what I've learned is. You, know, you learn so much about, for one thing, how so much of the workforce is employed because there's so many people in, in the workforce who are in retail. So you learn so much about the reality of the workforce, but you also have to deal with so many people. And, uh, you know, and, and if you're if you're operating and, and I mean, of course, all the business pressures aside, uh, just having to interact with all these people. Uh, and and if you if you make the mistake of thinking the customer is always right, then you're really in a bind. You drive yourself crazy. Well, there's so there's a statistical there's a there's a lesson about statistical analysis when working in retail. Okay? you're working. Let's say you're working in a retail environment. Let's say you're selling women's clothing. That's a that's a difficult thing because of there's sort of an emotional element of it um, that may not exist in other retail sectors. But anyway, so, and I told, I, I learned this early on. And I would remind my staff of this as often as I felt I needed to. A hundred customers come in that day and they have a good experience. They find what they're looking for. Uh, they make a purchase. They, they, you know, they fulfill their need, right? They have a good experience. No one gets hurt, right? Business done. That one person comes in. <clears throat> maybe that person's having a bad day or maybe they're just crazy. I don't know. And they cause a scene or they cause a problem and they're offensive and there's lots of drama. So which experience, which memory of the day are you going to take home with you? You know, so there's this thing we call outliers and stats, right? The, the tips and the tails. And they get all the attention, right? Because they're outliers by definition. And it's very easy to forget all the stuff that goes right, especially in retail. I mean, so many things have to go right just to kind of have a neutral result, right? Or a result that isn't very exciting, you know. It's, you know, someone comes in and buys or finds a thing that top they want or whatever. I mean, it's, it's all good, but it's not like their rockets going off. That one person comes in, it just does not not happen in that day, and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You take that home, you know. If you do that, it's going to ruin your day. And so, so, so you understand. So, so the the statistical lesson there is, as a retailer, uh, what you're saying is. That 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 negative experience is the one that sticks in your craw, and if you don't if you don't um, somehow uh, ma manage that, then that can be that can be your day. And and it's like the flip side of what customer service professionals say that you know if you have nine happy customers and one unhappy customer, the one unhappy customer is going to tell twenty people. The nine happy customers probably won't mention it. Yeah, they won't say a thing. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, especially in the age of social media, I mean, that's probably something you have to deal with. 
Right. And so, you know, that that outlier person, that one unhappy out of, you know, the the one out of the hundred, you do have to manage that. Right. I mean, from a branding perspective, but as you know, at a very personal level as an employee, right, you can't take those situations home with you. You can't let it sort of color your picture of the day or your job. And so I would, you know, I would have, I would try to remind my staff of that periodically, you know, something crazy happened. And, you know, I would support them. I, I, and these staff had earned my trust. I certainly wouldn't hang them out to dry. But it was, that was a real, that was a real education. I mean, that was sort of one of those aha moments about, you know, how we humans, we, we process information, we process our experiences. So it sounds like a lot of your early experiences, uh, spending a year in, in Budapest, um, uh, after spending three years in the most sort of like uh, complex systems integration projects, and then you know, then you go from your year in 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 Budapest to uh, to Chicago, and then you're you're doing uh, university turnarounds. All of a sudden, you're running a a, a women's clothing store, um, but it sounds like uh, this whole diversity of experience. Um, each time what you're learning is hard data is important, but there's something else going on below the surface that's more important. So hard data, there's data, you can get as much data as you want, and certainly in the corporate world, um, not hard to find. But uh, data does not make people necessarily think differently or view a problem the way or approach a decision, maybe the way it should be approached because all data is going to pass through a filter, our own personal filter and get interpreted in very different ways. And then, uh, you know, the, the implications of it may get overwritten or, or overcome by other types of biases that we have. There are other things than just data and sort of rational thought that are going to drive our behaviors. In fact, much more. And I've had, you know, data just sort of takes a, in rational thought, often takes a backseat to <clears throat> these more subjective factors. And I bring up the subject of behaviors because that work I did with that consulting firm where I was doing a lot of research, a lot of market research, and mostly in consumer industries, made me realize something else. And I sort of realized it later. What people say they do or will do and what they actually do are often very different things. And I've really become cynical of sort of consumer market research where you pose a scenario of, you know, you can pick product A, B or C, which one are you going to pick? Because humans themselves can't even predict how they would behave in a hypothetical situation like that. So if you really want to start to understand an organization like I have to as a consultant or just look at the behaviors, nothing predicts behavior like behavior. And, you know, though that became more apparent to me, I think, a little bit later. I mean, sort of that post that market research, quantitative market research research experience where I thought, you know, the the data I was getting was sort of the grail. I mean, it wasn't the grail. It was probably more of a false god. I mean, there was there was some truth in that. But I think now when I try to assess a client, an organization, and it's a different type of assessment. I'm usually looking at the organizational culture because I'm dealing with organizational change. I'm, it's all about behaviors. What are the behaviors you are seeing in the organization? You know, what, what are the actual actions that are occurring? If you, can, if you can understand that, if you can wrap your hands around that and the behaviors and, and make some reasonable guesses of what's driving these behaviors, you can figure out how you might make 
an organization behave differently, which might help them make better decisions. How important was your uh, five years at Decision Lens when it came to when it came to understanding that? I mean, it sounds like all of your insights from these experiences were as you were mastering hard data analysis, you kept seeing what was missing. Was that also true at Decision Lens? Yeah, I fell in love with Decision Lens because it, it's a very unique solution for dealing with complex problems, uh, decision-driven problems about making choices in environments or situations where you, you have a lot of choices. You, you might have to prioritize and choose some. Uh, but being a, a, a data-driven person or coming from a data-driven environment, you'll realize there's a lot of things that you want to quantify and you can't. Decision Lens taught me that there's an entire body of research and theory that allows you to apply techniques for actually quantifying more subjective types of judgments using relative scales and absolute scales. I mean, the whole theory behind Decision Lens, which was... It's, it was founded on this thing called the analytic hierarchy process, which was developed by a very smart guy named Thomas Sadi. Uh, he was part mathematician, I think part psychologist, um, who had a job in the State Department and actually helped the U.S. during, I think, the original SALT negotiations to, with the Brezhnev and the Soviets back in the day. And he felt the United States got their butt kicked in those negotiations, and he was really frustrated. So he went back to his office and came up with a methodology for establishing priorities using a subjective type of judgment rubric and, and just harvesting human judgment. So when I started to work at Decision Lens, I mean, I fell in love with the methodology. And I, to be brutally honest, so Decision Lens was a small, you know, 50-ish software company based in the D.C. area. They needed people in Chicago to help implement with their cl new clients or growing client base. Um, but their their history, which will resonate with you, was uh, mostly in the Department of Defense. DOD loved this methodology and what they were able to do to look at more, I think, complex types of problems. We call them portfolio problems. Basically, imagine you have a long array of choices and you're trying to figure out what is sort of the most optimizing choice based on the things you value most. So a lot of the early software was just underwritten by the DOD, you know, having contracts. And then they started to grow in the commercial sector. And that's when I came along. And when I got in the corporate world and, you know, or with corporate clients, commercial clients and started implementing, I mean, I, I could have talked their ear off about the methodology. And most people didn't care. They didn't care. They don't want to, you know, the corporate world is very different. So my job was to shut up and make sure that they could, that the thing could run. As I got involved with this and I was for about five years, I mean, one of these other aha moments, I realized that, you know, the technology piece was simple, uh, especially with, you know, this cloud-based stuff where you basically flip a switch. The application is like a website. A, a really successful implementation had nothing to do with technology. My clients it was all about behavior change. It was all about teaching people to think differently and act differently and use data a little bit differently. You know, if I didn't get that part right, they were not going to come back as a client. So the idea was change the behavior in the organization, connect with the people, you know, leverage the data that you have, make use of the data the system and methodology could generate but really try to get behave, people to behave differently. Yeah. And it's how much of that 
is so it sounds like uh, as you described your career path as circuitous, but it sounds like you you kept seeing the same truths hiding below the radar. And how much of that insight and that wisdom uh, is what drives your strategic advice now with executives in your in the mission driven clients you advise? Yeah, I mean, you could call it sort of the search for the truth. I guess I've been looking for the grail all these years. Um, I'm not sure I'll ever find it, but it is a theme that revolves around, I think, a search for the truth and, you know, going through different iterations of the truth or different different versions of the truth and realizing that, well, there probably isn't one sort of one version of the truth. With my clients today, Smaller organizations, uh, I mean, the mission-driven ones are typically under $50 million in terms of operating budget. So they're, they're pretty small, um, but powerful. I mean, they're, they're doing very powerful things in society to, to address problems. So they have a lot, can have a lot of leverage if they do it right. Um, but <clears throat> every organization, and it doesn't matter whether it's a university or a nonprofit charity or a big corporation, um, Every so often, I think you have to look in the mirror. You have to see yourself through the lens of your stakeholders, your customers, your constituents. I mean, whatever you whatever you call them, you are you are what your customers say you are. Uh, you are what your stakeholders say you are. And if you lose sight of that, you're probably going to fail. You're going you're, you're going to decline. You're going to lose sight of your mission. You will lose effectiveness. And um so a lot of my clients, you know, that's kind of one of the first things I look for is to, you know, how open are they to the external stakeholder view of themselves and how disconnected are they from the real world? And sometimes they're very disconnected. Sometimes they're pretty well connected. Right. It just it just varies. And is part of your approach to strategic advice, helping them connect their view and their planning with their reality? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I, I, you know, I mean, most strategic planning frameworks are very similar. I mean, there are a lot of different flavors of it, but it's you figure out where you are today and you figure out where you want to be maybe in five years from now, right? So you, you have point A and point B, right? And you try to connect the dots. So the plan is the sort of the plan to connect the dots. Well, okay, you, you, you got to know what your point A is. I mean, where are you today? And, you know, where you are today through the eyes of the people that matter, your stakeholders. And then, you know, a visioning exercise to where you envision the future, where you want to be five years from now, an aspirational view of the future, right? And so you've got two points. Well, how do you get from point A to point B? Well, there's the straight line approach, but we know the straight line is sort of a myth, right? We talked about this early on. It's just about more is caught than is taught. So you help the organization understand where it can place smart bets and invest resources to move itself in that direction. Not, not bet. You can't bet the farm. I mean, most of them, you don't bet the farm. You, you have to be, you have to be smart about it and you have to be open-minded and opportunistic. You have to be ready to pivot. Um, and those are the things that I try to help them understand as they do these planning exercises. So it's not about that one straight line between the two points. It's about different scenarios, right? And uh, so my partner and I, who's more the financial brains, we we actually will come up with strategy scenarios, and then we'll manifest them in financial terms, you see. 
uh, we'll, we'll express them in financial terms, right? And that's just part of the sort of multidisciplinary approach of strategic planning. I think on my resume, I say that I'm fluent in the languages of business. I can, I can speak finance and economics. Yeah, finance and so finance and economics, like any organization has to have that at a minimum. Um, I speak that language, I speak technology, right? I, I know enough about technology to be dangerous, I guess. But uh, no, I mean, I can still help do road mapping for technology. I mean, it's just I've done enough of that, right? Um, speak the language of strategy. I think a lot of strategy is about marketing and, you know, sort of the fundamental concepts of marketing and sales. I think is, I think I say strategy is 80 percent marketing. Some people may quibble with that. But, um, you know, a lot of that. So I think, you know, the ability to kind of speak these different languages is something that's in my skill set that I think allows me to work with these small clients and not have to bring in a lot of different specialists. And when you talk about scenario planning, and I think that's true, that strategic planning, when I first ran across strategic planners, um, they made strategic plans. Uh, now, now, now it's all scenario planning, often driven by uh, uh, algorithms that generate contingencies uh, at each level. Now, that's in large, complex situations like, you know, where to deploy a fleet or something. But 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 I think that's also true in small board decision making as well. Yeah, you, you you can't fixate on sort of one path or one outcome. You'll develop a lot of blind spots, right? You have to think about different different probabilities or different possibilities. That's not to say you don't have control over your trajectory, your organization. You, you know, you have a lot of control. But again, you have to be prepared to pivot, to adapt, to go with what works and abandon what doesn't work. And, you know, a lot of organizations struggle with that, too. They have sacred cows. Uh, I mean, universities are great for that. They just hold on to stuff that they shouldn't hold on to. But it's a complex set of governance that stands in the way a lot of times. Um, my mission-driven organizations typically don't have that. They're they're more buttoned up. They probably suffer more from a lack of mature processes. You know, some they're usually okay on the finance and accounting side, but they're not great. Um, they don't have strategic planning skills. Um, they typically have a dearth of data, especially once you get outside of finance. I mean, there's a lot of things that make it hard for them. And so I've got different techniques for helping them see their problems using, you know, sort of kernels of data, stuff that I can gather just through in the interview process. A lot of my research is just conversations, you know, not too different than the type of conversation we have now. I call it shop talk. Uh, you get people just to talk about what they're experiencing. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and that's, that's, I think, where our work uh, aligns uh, that, you know, um, of course, I'm always looking at data, uh, hard data, if I can get my hands on it. Uh, but I'll, I tell CEOs, you know, just let me go uh, interview some people and let me walk around. And, you know, I don't much like working, but I like watching people work. You know, let me let me let me let me walk around and and watch people work and just talk with people. And I'll tell you what's going on. And you, let me guess, you're looking at their behaviors. What are they? How do they interact with each other? What types of decisions that they're making? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what fascinates me about your your consulting practice, and why uh, I knew that we would have such a great conversation. Um, and, and so, so um, as we're nearing the end of our time, um, uh, the the question I always like to end on is, you know, if somebody's saying, 
wow, listen to this guy. He sounds, uh, I think you, you refer to it as a low pulse, right? He sounds so calm, cool, and collected. He's a low pulse guy. Uh, he's, he's a comfortable fellow. Um, and, he's, and, and here you are, you've got all this wisdom and expertise um, and you're, you're advising senior executives in, in really important mission-driven organizations, which you describe as small because they, they have operating budgets of only 50 or $100 million. But so to, to those who are listening and saying, how do I get to be like this guy? Um, what's, your, what's your kind of takeaway career advice? It's about finding a fit. I mean, you may, you may be in college and latch onto something and it just electrifies you and that becomes your trajectory and you just know. I think that's probably more the exception than the rule. Um, for me, it's been a discovery process, but it's a process that has been accelerated, enabled by an open mind, an active mind, a willingness to take risks, right? I quit a, you know, a, a predictable, somewhat, you know, desirable job in consulting so I could go muck around hungry for a year. I mean, why the hell would anybody do something like that? Well, being open-minded, taking risks, embracing new experiences, not being afraid to screw up, uh, learn from your mistakes, find out what your strengths are, find ways to leverage and find your fit in, you know, the, the business ecosystem. Again, I, you know, I, I, decided pretty early on I did not belong in big organizations or corporate organizations. I didn't mind them as clients. That's a very different dynamic than being inside one. So I just feel like I found a home where I am. And maybe also, um, you know, look beyond the hard data. That's my big takeaway. Understand what makes people make the decisions that they do. Uh, we are not at all rational uh, actors at all. We're, we're, we're very short-term focused. Uh, unfortunately, in many regards, it's why we don't save for retirement. You know, we, we, we optimize or maximize our utility in the short term, right? And I mean, if that's who you are, policymakers should take note of this because you have to work with these sort of uh, rules about human behavior to make better policy. You can't be sort of ideological in your policymaking thinking that people will respond to sort of ideological frameworks that say, well, they're going to do this because this is the best for society. It doesn't work that way. You do stuff like that, you're going to have terrible results. I think understanding what drives human behavior is something that will help you navigate every aspect of your life, whether it's professional or whether it's personal. Um, I think it's made me a better husband. You'd have to ask Rachel that. I, I'd like to think I've become a better husband. I have, over 20 years, I, I've certainly had made enough mistakes. But uh, I'm still here. Human beings are creatures of control. We crave control over our environment. It makes us, I mean, it's, it, it brings us a psychic benefit. It, and it's the reason why we have survived as a species and thrived as a species. I think one of the greatest truths in life, though, is our lives are much, much more random than we would ever care to comfortably admit. Man, there is so much randomness in the world. Things are going to come your way. I've been really, really lucky because I have not been struck by you know horrible incidents of you know, horrible random occurrences, uh, you know, between health and economic security and and, and other instances. It's just I've, I, you know, I got I got a really good draw. I remind myself that you know that you know things can change on a dime. And I think we have to understand as people that, you know, so many things that happen to us are just, it's just random events, good and bad. 
you don't always have control over these things. I, you know, my father got struck down with dementia and sort of went on this you know, decline. And I, you know, I, I didn't have, I had zero control over that, over what was happening. I had very little control. And I, and, but I, I, I said to myself, I said, well, I can't control most of this. I said, but the one thing I can do, you know, is to, is to, I can, I can make my dad comfortable. I can make him safe with dementia and then I can make him comfortable. And, and I can also do sort of little things to try to honor his legacy with, with interacting with his peers, his, his friends and so on. I just focused on the little things that I could control and I didn't worry about the rest. I told myself, you just can't worry about the rest. You can't let this ruin your day. You can't let this beat you down. You have to accept it, right? You have to accept these random things and just find the way to make the best of it. Oddly enough, I mean, through my dad's decline, I mean, I, I it kind of sucked, but it was hard to watch. But I felt an incredible sense of mission and peace because I felt like I was helping him write the last chapter of his life. And um, more so about learning about his legacy and making sure that, you know, he went out with uh, dignity and, and remembrance, you know, remembrance of the things that he did and what he stood for. It was far from a negative experience. It was actually one of the one of the most positive experiences I ever had. Well, that's um, that's a really beautiful thing, and I I'm honored that you would share that. And um, um, I will say two things. One, um, I think there's tremendous wisdom in what you say about the randomness of life, and um, and the humility that should inspire in all of us. And, um, and, and the story about your dad, uh, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's powerful. I can say that, uh, not only do I enjoy it every time we talk, but I learn from every conversation I have with you. In fact, um, where this interview came from was, uh, we were catching up, uh, uh, randomly, uh, catching up. And, uh, I was so dazzled by uh, what you had to say. I, I wanted to have you on, uh, on the podcast. So, so Bela Barner, thank you for being a guest on the Indispensables. Thank you for listening. I've taken advantage of the soapbox you've given me. I appreciate it. In our next episode, I'll talk with Sunit Bhatt, who is the CEO and co-founder of Boulder, the purpose-driven outsourcing company. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.